0: tuesdays mean it 's doctor history time, and you know a lot of times we 'll have fun with our program and we have fun with various historical stories, etc today we 're going to talk about something that is not fun it 's very serious, and it 's something we all need to look in the mirror and say, "How great a patriot
1: are we really and here is doctor history Thank you, Zeb. Uh, just wanted to remind folks uh, I had the privilege and the honor of being asked to be part of the History Camp America 2021, and this next Saturday, it will go for five hours. You'll have a choice of five speakers in each hour, and through the next year, be able to listen to all 25 speakers, and I was privileged to be asked to be one of those presenters for that History Camp. I am going to try to tune in. So, anyway, I'm going to start off, Zeb, and I've already showed you this. Right. Folks, I'm showing you, I'm showing Zeb a flag that's probably about 18 inches long. You
0: know, turn it, honestly, turn it that way. Oh, uh, Okay. Facing that way, there's the flag. And for those that watch diligently uh, and listen to Zeb at the Ranch on ZebBell.com, ZebBell.com, you can see the. Hold it up just a little bit higher. Right there is perfect. You can see this flag. Go ahead,
1: Ken. Okay, Thank so you very much. It's about eighteen much. inches long. Yeah. <clears throat> about a, about twelve inches wide. It has two blue stars on it. This is called a service flag. During World War One and Two, if you had servicemen in your family, you hung this. Uh, uh, in your window, if you had one or two, if you had one son, you had one blue flag mm-hmm. or one blue star. Right. If you lost a son or a daughter... It became a gold star. I see. My grandparents had a blue star for a while, and then it turned into a gold star as their oldest son went down in World War II with his ship. I see. So I just wanted to show that to you, folks. I'm glad you brought that. Thank you. Thank you. So I want to talk first about our flag, uh, Old Glory. And uh, I want to tell you how it became known as Old Glory. So there was a famous uh, captain by the name of Captain William Driver. He was a shipmaster in Salem. Massachusetts in 1831 as he was leaving on one of his many voyages aboard the ship, the Charles Doggett, and this one would actually climax in the rescue of the mutineers of the bounty. He was out to, to get the mutiny on the bounty people. Really? Yeah. Now, some of his friends presented him with a beautiful flag, 24 stars. As the banner opened to the ocean breeze for the first time, he exclaimed, Old Glory. Now, he retired to Nashville in 1837. He took his treasured flag from his sea days with him. By the time the Civil War erupted, most everyone in and around Nashville recognized Captain Driver's old glory. When Tennessee seceded from the Union, rebels were determined to destroy his flag, but they could never find it. On February 25, 1862, Union forces captured Nashville and raised the American flag over the Capitol. Now, it was kind of a small... All ensign, And immediately folks began asking Captain Driver if Old Glory still existed. So happy to have soldiers with him this time, Captain Driver went home, began ripping apart the seams of his bed cover. As the stitches holding the quilt uh, unraveled, the onlookers looked inside, and there was the 24-starred, original Old Glory. Captain Driver gently gathered up the flag, returned with the soldiers to the Capitol. By this time, he was actually 60 years old. The captain climbed up to the tower to replace the smaller flag with his beloved flag. The 6th Ohio Regiment cheered and saluted and later adopted the nickname Old Glory as their own, telling and retelling the story of Captain Driver's devotion to the flag that we honor yet. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's changed, Zeb, over the years. We know that. Sure. We know that. So, folks, this is something I hope you will think about every time you sing the national anthem, all right? In 1776, of course, the colonies won our independence, but uh, the War of 1812, you could kind of call that a second war for independence. So we're going to go back to the summer of 1814 for a minute. Two years into the War of 1812, at Fort McHenry, the commander, Major George Armistead, asked for a flag so big that the British would have no trouble seeing it from a distance. Now, two officers went were sent to the home, uh, to the Baltimore home of Mary Young Pickersgill, and commissioned the flag. Mary and her 13-year-old daughter Caroline used 400 yards of the best quality wool bunting. They cut 15 stars that measured 2 feet from point to point, 8 red and 7 white stripes each 2 feet wide. They were cut. Laying out the material on the floor, the flag was sewn together. By August, it was finished. It measured 30 by 42 feet. Wow! Now, Zeb, that's, you've seen a lot of big flags, but that's, that's, a big flag. that's a big flag.
0: That's a big flag.
1: Now, we know the colonies were engaged in war with England. Both sides had prisoners. The American government went to the British and said, let us negotiate for the release of these prisoners. The British were holding some of these prisoners in boats about 1,000 yards offshore in their, in their ships and boats the government said we want to send a man out to negotiate an exchange of prisoners which happened to be Francis Scott Key on the appointed day he went out in a rowboat to negotiate with the British officials and they reached a conclusion that men could be exchanged on a one-for-one basis well Francis Scott Key was happy with the success of the negotiation he went down into the cargo hold of the ship and found a mass of humanity He told them they were free and they would be released from the filth and the chains that held them in this dark, damp hold of this ship. It was terrible. It was. He said when he went back up on the deck, the admiral came to him, the British admiral, and said, Well, he says, we have a slight problem. We will honor our commitment to release these men, but it will be merely academic after tonight. You see that fort over there? Tonight, we are going to remove it from the face of the earth. Look over the water. Scott could see hundreds of boats and ships. It was the entire British war fleet. All of the armament and the gunpowder is to be called upon to demolish that fort. Well, he said, you can't do that. It's full of women and children, and it is actually not a military fort. The admiral said, don't worry about it. You see that flag way up on the rampart? We have told them if they will lower that flag... The shelling will stop immediately, and we will know that they have surrendered, and you will now be under British rule. Well, Francis Scott Key went down below. He told the men what was about to happen. He told the men, I'll go back up on deck, and I'll shout down to you what's going on. As twilight began to fall, and a haze hung over the ocean, as it does at sunset, suddenly the British war fleet unleashed. The noise was deafening. There was no relief from the sound of the cannon fire. The bombardment continued for 25 hours. The British firing 1,500 bombshells that weighed as much as 220 pounds and carried lighted fuse that would supposedly cause it to explode when it reached its target, but they weren't very dependable and often blew up in mid-air. From special small boats, the British fired the rockets that traced these wobbly arcs of red flame across the sky. It was impossible to speak or hear, Key said. Although it was dark, the sky was suddenly lit. From down below, he could hear the prisoners asking one question. Tell us where the flag is. What have they done with the flag? Is the flag still flying over the rampart? Tell us. One hour. Two hours, three hours into the shelling, every time a bomb would explode close to the flag, they could see the flag in that illuminated red glare. And Francis Gottkey would report to the men down below, it's still up. It's not down. The Admiral came and said, your people are insane. What's the matter with them? Don't they understand this is an impossible situation? Francis Scott Key remembered something George Washington had said. What sets the American Christian apart from the rest of the world is that he will die on his feet rather than live on his knees. Amen. The Admiral said, We have now instructed all the guns to aim at that flag on the rampart. We will take it down. One thing we don't understand, our reconnaissance tells us that flag has been hit again and again Yet the flag is still flying. We don't understand that. We are now about to bring every gun to bear on the flag for the next three hours. Francis Scott Key said the barrage was unmerciful. All he could hear was the men down below praying for God to keep that flag flying where they had last seen it. Sunrise came. He said there was a heavy mist hanging over the land, but the rampart was tall enough to be seen, and there was the flag. It was in shreds. The flagpole was at a crazy angle, but the flag was still at the top. Francis Key boarded a small boat to go ashore to see what had happened. What he found was that the flag and the flagpole had suffered repetition direct hits. When the flag went down, the Patriots would go over and raise the flag, knowing it was the main British target. When they died, their bodies were removed, and others took their place. Francis Scott Key said that what held the flag at that unusual angle were the Patriots. He penned the song, The Star-Spangled Banner. Zeb, I'm going to read all the verses. Is that okay?
0: No, believe me, I think it's fitting.
1: (laughs) Oh, say can you see, by the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. O say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. On the shore dimly seen through the mists of the deep where the foe's haughty host in dread silence reposes, what is that which the breeze o'er the towering steep as it fitfully blows half conceals half discloses now it catches the gleam of the morning's first beam in full glory reflected now shines on the stream tis the star-spangled banner oh long may it wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave and where is that band who so vaun- vauntingly swore that the havoc of war and the battle's confusion a home and a country should leave us no more their blood has washed out their foul footsteps pollution. No refuge can save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave and the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, May the heaven-rescued land praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause is just. And this be our motto. In God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. I have said
0: on this program a long time, Dr. History, that Those that want to take, eliminate, and basically throw away that national anthem, there's going to be a lot of people standing in their way. That tells historically, really, what happened in the preservation of the flag over this great land. And one other thing I want to mention I was given by a very dear friend. An original flag that did fly over Fort McHenry. And it's out in my living room by my trophy case.
1: You know, ever since I've been doing this program and this story, when I stand with my hand over my heart, I picture what happened at Fort McHenry. And I hope, folks, that as you listen to the the real story behind our, our national anthem, that you will remember that, that you will tell your kids and your grandkids this story. uh, The American value system is all wrapped up in those verses. Exactly. I mean, there's so much wisdom uh, in that. You know, when George Washington took the office office in 1789, he added the words, So help me God, to the oath. Now, the oath of office as taken by George Washington referred to that parent of the human race that has been pleased to favor the American people and allowed them to have a government. Now, Viseb, you know I'm a student of history, and I have found in studying history the time after time the hand of God in preserving and protecting this great nation. The British set fire to the White House and the Capitol, which was stopped by a sudden rainstorm. They did it again a second night, and again another rainstorm. Several times during the American Revolution, the British had the opportunity to defeat the American forces, but for some reason did not. Our founding, founding fathers referred to the hand of deity in the writing of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Now, as you just mentioned, there are those who would have us remove the words under God from our Pledge of Allegiance, and there's those who would have us change our national anthem because it's too difficult to sing. But knowing the story of how the song came to be written by Francis Scott Key, e, I believe it embodies the spirit of this Absolutely. great country, the bravery and courage of our military. And I know there are listeners out there who have loved ones that served, and some that did not come back, and some that are still serving our great country right now. And I want them to know how much I appreciate what they've done to protect our freedoms. You know, Zeb, for you and I to sit here and talk on this radio show, for you to say what you want to say uh, and me to say what I want to say, for you and I to go to the religion, the church of our religion, to go outside to be able to get in our vehicle and travel across this great land, To those men and women who've served uh, our country and do continually, I just want to say thank you very much. Well, the four words
0: that keep coming back to me, in God we trust, and that was part of Francis Scott Key, in God we trust. And we've lost a lot of that. I'm going to be very blunt. We've lost it, and we have to
1: get it back. You know, Zeb... uh, I've got this uh, about the signers of the Constitution. Should I go ahead and do that? Yeah, I was going to say, I read it earlier this morning. Right. But uh, I think
0: it would be fitting to do it again.
1: Okay. So, folks, have you ever wondered what happened to the 56 men who signed the Declaration Declaration of Independence and what fates befell them for their daring to put their names to that document? And Stop and think about something, folks. Which side would you be on uh, in the Revolutionary War? Now, think if you had a small farm, a family, you had everything that you needed. Would you really want to go against the British? But these brave men did. Five signers were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons serving the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships of the Revolutionary War. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honor. What kind of men were they? 24 were lawyers and jurists, 11 were merchants, 9 were farmers and large plantation owners, men of means, well-educated, but they signed the Declaration of Independence knowing full well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his home and properties to pay his debts and died in rags. Thomas McKean was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family were kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Vandals or soldiers looted the properties of Dillery, Hall, Clymer, Walton, Gwinnett, Heward, Rutledge and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. He quietly urged General George Washington to open fire. The home was destroyed and Nelson died in bankruptcy. Francis Lewis had home and properties destroyed, the enemy jailed his wife and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and grist mill were laid to waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead, and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Absolutely. Norris and Livingston suffered similar fates. Such were the stories and sacrifices of the American Revolution. These were not wild eyed, rabble rousing ruffians. They were soft spoken men, men of education. They had security, but they valued liberty more. Amen. Uh,
0: We've got a caller, Ken. Real yeah, quick. Okay. Let me take this call. I've only got two minutes left. Caller, really be brief. Go ahead, please. I'll
1: be as brief as I can. Yesterday, at the Unity Elias board, Dr. History put on this program, and I'll tell you what, it was great. And a lot of people were there, and the young people were just in awe at what our history was. I am so proud of Dr. History, my good friend.
0: There you go. Thank you for your call. God bless you for that program. And I I really do mean that. You know, we have a lot of fun, if you will, on this program, talking about history of the Old West, et cetera. This was not a program of fun. It was a program of reality and something that we'd better get back to, and that's pride in America. Thank you, Zed. God bless you, man. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived.